This is MPN. From Los Angeles, it's the McShank Podcast on the McCarran Podcast Network. Here's Ryan and Clayton. Welcome to the McShank Podcast, another episode here on McCarran Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Um, of course, you already know the players. I'm Ryan McCarran. Clayton Shank. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing very well. We're doing very well. We wanted to, um, in the advance of a new film that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Called, um, called The Visit. Called The Visit, uh, which normally I would not have any real interest in, and really don't. Frankly. I really don't anyway. No. Um, but it kind of got us thinking a little bit about the career of one M. Night Shyamalan. And Ryan, when you pitched this to me, it kind of took me aback because I felt blindsided by it. Because if we were going to profile an actor, a director, screenwriter, whatever, M. Night Shyamalan would have been pretty far down the list yeah. for you to suggest. <laughs> uh, I haven't even seen up up until this research that we've just done i hadn't even seen one of his films since the village which came out in 2004 so m knight and i have been strangers for over 10 years You've been on the outs yeah <laughs> i don't know about you have you followed his films have you uh, seen all of them up to a point actually i have actually Ooh. um we i had seen were you coerced um, was there a bait and switch? Not really a bait and switch per se, but it was just it was a sort of like, well, this movie is supposed to be awful. Let's just check it out. And um, you know, anybody who knows anything about my or my wife's film watching habits knows that that that's no surprise. Yes. Um, so I have actually kept up, and it's sort of a it's become more of a just a morbid curiosity at this point, like. How much lower can, can, his, can, can he get? Can he set his own bar? Yeah. And how, and how does he keep getting projects off the ground? Right. I, I mean, I, I didn't really delve too much into the successfulness of any of his films to date. I think he's they've made a decent amount of money just based mm-hmm. on maybe his earlier body of work yeah. and the, the hype that may come with an M. Night Shyamalan release. But I have to say, that judging just from the... The zeitgeist, if you will, oh. <laughs> that, that the last three films have been met with more and more laughter and general indifference. Yeah, and uh, so I actually have not even looked to see if they made money. His name used to be synonymous with one thing, and now it's completely the opposite. When people see his name in trailers, even if he's not involved very much, um, if they see his name, it elicits laughter. Like you said, I mean, it's. It's <clears throat> it's happened frequently where you see a trailer for his movies and people just go, ah, I can't believe this guy's making another movie. From a marketing standpoint, they stuck with the from the director of The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And after the ha- after um, the Last Airbender, they decided not to do that <laughs> yeah. with his next movie After Earth, which was the Will Smith vanity nepotism project. project. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, not great. I'm not sure if he was. <laughs> you're, I'll take your word for yeah. it. Uh, you might have just no. You didn't save me anything. I wasn't going to see it no, anyway. No, no, no. Uh, but he seems almost more like a hired gun in that movie because it just didn't seem like his project or his idea from the no, beginning. No, and and it's and it's so it's very odd to me that him not really having much to do with it, or that the that they didn't attach his name, just like plaster his name all over it. 
that Will Smith would have chosen him to do it, or vice versa. It seems very odd that, mm-hmm. that those two would pair up. In any rate, his name was nowhere near that film. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, they didn't reference a director at all, and only the, the savviest of the savvy made the connection. Uh, because, you know, Will Smith movies, you're probably curious at the very yeah. least whenever they come out. Uh, but because this is a filmmaker who around the time, 2002, when he released Signs, was listed by Time Magazine as the next Spielberg. Actually, it was Newsweek. It was Newsweek. I have it up here, actually. I have the photo. Yeah. Touted as the he's standing in a cornfield. It says, the next Spielberg, from Sixth Sense to Signs, M. Night Shyamalan is Hollywood's hottest new storyteller. Well, well, things have taken a, a turn for the the morbidly curious yes. since then, and every for every preceding film has seemed to spiral more and more out of control. So it's almost like the corn that he's standing in is kind of like the field of dreams cornfield, <laughs> and he kind of left his other self that made these great films in that cornfield and so he's making movies that like shoeless joe jackson and all these guys and like terrence mann are going to see and they're they're great they're brilliant but he came out of the cornfield and got worse people won't come Ray. no people won't won't definitely (laughs) come (laughs) so it is it is very interesting and you and i were talking about it beforehand just that the I called it the trans-shittening. <laughs> the trans-shittening <laughs> from must-see to can't-see. To, exactly, to just won't-see. or just <laughs> I, and, and so what we're going to try to do is sort of try to unlock what's gone wrong a little bit. I mean, because I, I had talked to you like, well, what are we going to talk about? I mean, we have this idea to talk about this filmmaker, this very lightning rod filmmaker. And I go, well, are we just going to talk about like, what the fuck happened? Like, what what happened to him? We kind of landed on approaching this like we did in an earlier podcast when we were the triumphant, known as the McShruga cast, when we profiled... Rest in peace, Mike. One, if only he was alive to see it. We profiled one Nicolas Cage because another lightning rod, if you're a film fan, the man is capable of absolute brilliance and the worst shit you'll see in a given year. <laughs> And it felt like a worthy endeavor to try and unlock that mystery. And I think we yeah. want to take an, a similar approach to the night. Yeah. And more of a director profile, you could say. Yeah. And so we can, I, I mean, unarguably, you could say he has made three solid movies. Three solid to very good movies. Solid to very good movies that are easily watchable and actually should be sought out and watched. Yeah. One directly after that that is sort of one foot on one side and one foot on the other side which i think it, was a tragedy of the village right? mismarketing yes the yeah. village the the, the, the the marketing in the village really sucked the wind out of it for me because i think i was just expecting a completely different film they had marketed it with some of the tropes of his previous movies and it was it was just nothing like that and so i kind of felt just betrayed in general and manipulated. Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm never able to look at the village honestly for some reason. Mm-hmm. But I think we can both agree that after the village per se is when things really started to get interesting. A precipitous downfall, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, and so kind of what we wanted to do is we, Clayton and I watched what, what, what we would consider one of his good movies as well as 
one of his bad movies. Ryan, in this case, watched Unbreakable, which he's considering one of his good films, uh-huh. and he also watched Lady in the Water. Yes. I took it upon myself to revisit The Sixth Sense, if, on, if for the only reason that I... This is the only other one of his good movies I owned, mm-hmm. besides Unbreakable. <laughs> and like I said, I hadn't seen anything past The Village, so I had to cough up three dollars <laughs> and rent the happening which but you said that though i asked i gave you the opportunity to to, to get I'm out not of bitter. it i am not bitter okay i'm not bitter right. i'm just acknowledging a reality i'm really curious to hear your take on it and uh, <laughs> oh you'll get my yeah. take on it so, <laughs> um so first a little bit about the man himself um he's born in uh, 1970 uh he was born in india but um his parents eventually moved to Pennsylvania, which is important because as Many anybody, of his films they are, all take place in there. Correct. You know, you, you know he's where he's from because he, he consistently wants to have his hometown and home state represented. I didn't see After Earth, but I don't think that was Pennsylvania. Well, no. No, I guess that's true. But um, again, most of them, more than the last airbender for that matter. But anything anything set in the real world um, is going to be uh, set in I don't in think around. any of his movies for 10 years have been yeah. set in the real world. <laughs> or at least, I don't even... Ryan, know. did you actually dig up that the middle name Knight is completely made up? I did not, actually. Yes. No. It, was, it was made up in college. Really? For some reason, which remains to be explained. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, continue. Well, yeah. So he's worked with a number of different studios. He started to work with Touchstone with his first few films. And this is something we'll kind of we'll get into when I talk about Lady in the Water. But it's, you know, and maybe this could be part of it as well, that he has seemingly worked with a different studio each and every single time after the village essentially so could be nothing could mean everything it could mean like nothing but it could be a little bit about uh a little bit about the man content so, uh well possibly <laughs> so content and the man there are 11 doctors in his immediate and extended family he chose the path less traveled apparently and echoing one of his most obvious idols and influences the great alfred hitchcock he's made cameos in some form or another in at least six of his films that i was able to find again i haven't seen all of them. Yeah. Uh, at one point, he was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood when he mm. was commissioned by Disney to write signs for a sum of $5 million. He had completed 45 homemade movies by the age of 17. Uh, his favorite film is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this is my absolute favorite. And you, the movie-going public, <laughs> is going to rejoice right now. He's turned down a certain number of films to work on. Really? Okay. Yes. You have a list? I, I have a list okay. of the ones that are make that make this fact worth telling. <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe maybe there's more. He turned down three Harry Potter films. Whoa. On three separate occasions. Three separate times? I'm guessing this was earlier in the run. I would imagine so, yeah. But this is this is the Grand Slam. He turned down after Unbreakable was made. It's post Unbreakable. He turned down the chance to write and direct new versions of both Spider-Man and Batman before guys like Sam Raimi or Christopher Nolan were ever even involved. He turned them down because, rightfully so, I'll give give, give him credit for this logic, he had already made Unbreakable and he Mm -hmm. considered that his superhero film. Right. So we can all be thankful that it made sense to him. And in retrospect, it certainly makes sense to us. Yeah, sometimes the best deals are the ones you don't make. And <laughs> this is exactly one of those times. 
This is exactly one of those times. But anyway, I had to get that no, out. No, you absolutely that's absolutely that's that's a wonderful fact. Thank you. So do you just wanna dive into the I good films? Should. I say we'll or what do you, bad films or good films? Let's let's go with the bad ones first, I think. <laughs> because those are more fun. They're always and, more um, fun. And you know, it's it's funny that you use that terminology dive in. Um <laughs> Because uh, I did want to talk about 2006's um, just utterly atrocious Lady in the Water. Which, which we can call his first real stinker. Miss. Yeah. Complete miss. Yeah. And I will preface this by saying when The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Signs, I mean, after Signs, I would have probably considered him my favorite director at that point. I it's, mean, it, it would have been reasonable. Yeah. I mean, you, I saw The Sixth Sense, I hadn't, didn't have it spoiled for me. And I went and saw it again. I saw it three different times in the theaters because you got to pick up a little bit clues like that. Um, but I mean, Unbreakable and Signs are both very, very good, in my opinion. I agree. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about Unbreakable. Actually, your, your film Unbreakable is, is actually my favorite yeah. uh, Shyamalan film to date. Mine too. That's why I was happy I got a chance to watch it again. This was one of the worst movies I'd ever seen when I first saw it. <laughs> And I remember just because I the, 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 it starts off with an almost an like an animated sequence setting up this fairy tale question mm-hmm. mark right I kept that, I kept seeing the phrase <clears throat> bedtime story yes used to mention it yeah. yeah that's that that's kind of how he likes to describe it really because it's very to, to him i feel like it's very fantastical it's the story he told his kids when he you know when before putting them in the bed but it just starts out with this inane backstory of something that sort of starts to set up who these people in the water are and how they used to be together with man and man got so greedy and they left and i was just i just checked out i had just i was just out of it after that um so it had a lot to try to win me back. Sure. And at the time when I saw it... it so it, it opened with a complete thud. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And I'm just going, oh, God, this guy made Unbreakable? Like, this is the guy? Um, and it just it kept getting worse and worse and worse because there are parts of it that just don't make any sense at all. There, mm-hmm. there are, I mean, even the whole basis of the movie, why this mermaid we'll call her a mermaid mm-hmm. why this mermaid is in this pool in the first place at this at this apartment complex never really explained mm-hmm. is she trying to save man is she trying to teach them a different way you have no idea you have no idea and so that you struggle with that because that's your foundation mm-hmm. so you struggle with that as you go and i think that's a fault of of him as a screenwriter, right, and some, and there are there have been great films that really don't explain how they get started. But the difference mm-hmm. is how you make up the difference, yeah, the strength of your content in yeah. the second and third acts. How but, do you fill in the gaps to try to? How, how do you divert attention away from that? And you know, how do you excel at another part of it? To right. make you sort of, right. I'm not thinking of like Dawn of the Dead, where there's a zombie apocalypse that starts. You never really know what was the inciting factor, yeah. but the rest of the film is so strong that it actually becomes a virtue of the film. Yeah, which sounds like is the opposite case here. Now, and I tried to go into it. The reason I I picked it specifically because I disliked it so much when I first saw it, and I wanted to to give it another fresh set of eyes and feel like okay, I'm a little bit older now. You know, my life is different. Maybe I'm not going to be as I'll try to look at it as pretentiously as I did before. Yeah, maybe oh, I got done, I got, just got done with my first year of film school when it came out. Oh, I'm such a hot shot, you know. Right, right, right. And the uh, kind of guy who would have loved upstream color. Oh God, 
Oh, God. <laughs> Had to bring that up again. No. I've seen it, too. I'm just as guilty. Yeah. Watching it again, it's not. It's, it's still not good. It's it's, just, it just didn't work. No just, more subtext you could read no, into it or anything. No. I mean, and there was, there, there, was, there was very little then, and there's even more, I feel like, now that I am looking at more of the logic and the the storytelling failures and things like having finished film school, maybe I needed a second year to really get that piece of it. But, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, it was very interesting. I mean, the, the, the thing that is really interesting about it is because you can see that the visual style is very similar to what he had in his other movies that were good. And so it confuses me and frustrates me so Mm -hmm. much to see him because he does, play with angles very well he does have a, a very good sense of um production design and, mm-hmm. and everything is ver- built very just so you can very tell this great attention to detail but there's just something that's off because it's just style for style's sake right it doesn't it, it, if you don't pair it with some kind of substance or a good story mm-hmm. or anything like that yeah. it again just it's just sort of like well it looks kind of neat but who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know just, what I mean? And, and so it's, it's an empty suit. Yeah. <laughs> now, the mermaid's name in this movie is Story. Ooh, that's painfully ironic. Yeah, as I kind of think, like that's a little bit too on the nose. Like, oh, the story is the one who's. Well, talk about saddling yourself with lofty expectations. Yes, <laughs> you, I, you have to. I kind of have to meet the call when you yeah. name your character's story. Yeah, the story is the one who's full of virtue and and grace, and everything is everything. You know, it has to bow down to this almighty story, and it's like, come on, man, really. <laughs> That's all you have to say about it. You just sort of go, oh, oh, come on, Mom. Interestingly, this will come up again, actually, in a more positive context when I talk about The Sixth Sense, because there is a very self-referential moment that works because that was a good film. But here, that is just kind of shoveling more dirt on the corpse. Now, I mean, I talked about that style and that production design. The apartment complex that he builds, sorry, that that is in the movie, is built from scratch. And the pool that is built. I mean, the, I mean... 95% 95% of the movie happens within this apartment complex and also around this pool, basically. Mm-hmm. The pool has a very interesting shape to it. And so everything was... I mean, the movie the movie costs $70 million, and there are next to zero special effects in it. And it all probably went to this building this massive apartment complex just so... glacier water in that pool? Just so M. Night can have whatever it is that he wants. <laughs> Um, now he is in this film. He does. As, he, he does have a cameo. He do, no, or is a role. It's a role. Ah, he play. He is in it. He is one of the main players in this movie. Okay, which I don't like <laughs> because I, I I I get it when he's you know little touches in his other films. You know he's sort of sprinkled in. Oh, he's the drug dealer in you know that's the stadium in Unbreakable. Or oh, he's the doctor for. Um, for Haley yeah. Joel Osment, he's, he's, he's the neighbor in Signs who yeah. traps one of the aliens in his in his right, basement. Or right now, that was even I think about that now, and I think that because wasn't in Signs, wasn't it that the well, he was, he was, he was actually uh, very involved in the emotion because, in, in yeah, emotional because he was the one the who 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 drove into his wife and Mel Gibson's wife. Right, he, he was, was always referenced driver. though. He wasn't seen until later. Yeah, for the most part. So that basically. In in Lady in the Water, he plays a character named Vic Ran. Okay, and the idea is that Story, the mermaid, is here on Earth, 
and there are certain people that are around her who have different roles in her life and will help her get back to her world for some reason. I don't know why she was even here if all she's trying to do is go home. But She's obviously attracted to Paul Giamatti. Apparently, <laughs> yes. Um, and so he, one of the characters is like, one of the people that needs to help her is known as like the storyteller or the, the writer. And that's his character. And you find out because the mermaids can also see into the future. Why not, right? Um, <laughs> Why not go hog wild? Yeah. You find out that he is going to write something or he's in the, he's in the process of writing something that's going to become a, uh, a, a book for a revolutionary in the future. That somewhere down the line, um, first of all, he's going to get killed because he's saying crazy things about the government and he's saying – you know, he's saying things that people don't want to hear, but then some other kid is going to read his book and create this uprising and take over something like that. And I'm just thinking, like, yeah, you're just like this great writer. You you make this the character, like, oh yeah, my work's going to create something revolutionary someday. It's going to be used as a revolution tool, and it's like that is so pretentious. So pretentious. I, I hate using that word. No, I, it, it is. It's, it's a word that I rarely ever use because I don't think it's justified, and it's kind of used to write off an individual or a film without much thought. Mm -hmm. But that does sound awfully pretentious. Yeah, like, you could have put anybody in that role. Like, mm -hmm. why would you cast your... What you, why would you write that role for yourself, basically? Like, this character is going to create something, you know, amazing someday. Like, maybe you should have just focused on creating something amazing right here, right, <laughs> right, now. right in the here and now. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, yeah, again, I have not seen this, so yeah. this is all a revelation yeah. for me of sorts, as in apocalyptic yeah. uh, New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> but they take so much time and effort crafting this fairy tale and crafting these this story and, and craft. And I keep saying story, but that's true. Yeah. Not the mermaid itself, the actual story itself. Yeah. And. I don't care. It just mm. the, the, there is no substance behind it to make you even care about it at all. Right. And and without that, it just it falls apart because mm -hmm. you can't. You, you you try to go down this road of like magical realism or something, mm -hmm. and you don't get it. It just if you don't hit the right note with magical realism, it just comes off as like this is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like this yeah. doesn't make this is awful. Like I don't understand this. But if you can hit, if you can find that right balance. It could really be really effective, mm -hmm. but this one not so much. Really, complete, um, okay. Complete miss. Anything redeemable about um, it? I think the the performances in it are very good. Okay, and that is again something that is through at least at least through a couple of these films is that he does draw big names. Like people right. worked with him. I mean, this movie had Paul Giamatti, Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, it had, uh, Jeffrey Wright in right. it. Okay. Um, you know, it had Jared Harris was in it the, for like a small cameo, mm -hmm. uh, in the trivia, apparently, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman had said he liked the script, but wasn't able to do it for timing. Like he had other okay. conflicts going on. Like the script. Yeah. I don't, wow. I don't get it. Was it just a, a, a horrible translation from paper to screen? What did, did it only see, work as a story? I can see reading it maybe because uh -huh. he did release it as a storybook mm -hmm. alongside, like coinciding with the release of the film. Okay. And, and I think, well, the, the, I have one other story to tell about that really quick. It just about the making of the movie itself. And again, this is, could be part of his transitioning from good to bad is that he took this movie, he took this movie, took this script to Disney 
and this is allegedly this was there was a book written all about this mm. and said i have the script i want you to read it this is my next movie mm-hmm. um he had it specially sent over to this woman at disney to read it um and she didn't get around to it in time or she went to her kid's birthday party and he got really upset that she didn't read the script okay and decided to then take the movie and make it at Warner Brothers. Okay. Didn't get the same advertising budget that he would have had at Disney. Uh-huh. And basically, the movie bombed because of that. It cost $70 million to make. It only made $73 million. Okay. So it barely made back its budget, if, I mean, if you consider other things. But what I think is that he kind of surrounded himself with yes-men and, sur- and, and kind of maybe got a little too big for his britches and mm-hmm. kind of thought, anything I do will turn to greatness. So you yeah, I mean, clearly you gotta, don't you gotta, see. You, you got to figure he has, he thinks he has the King Midas touch at, the, yeah. at this point. I mean, and he's why had wouldn't he? three good, massive, two, two very good films in a row. Yeah. And one that was kind of you know, smack in the middle somewhere. Some right. people like, some people uh, thought that was the start of the collapse, mm-hmm. <laughs> but good enough to where you'd still, you wouldn't really feel any chinks in the armor yeah. at that point. If you're Mr. Shyamalan and, he probably this is kind of going to get around to something that I've noticed just judging from his interviews and quotes is that there is a there, there is an ego here mm-hmm. and a and a stubbornness that sometimes has violent collisions with reality yeah, and, and it can kind of get in the way mm-hmm. of of the work itself mm-hmm. right so um, I think that that I mean it's a very interesting I, I would love to to read the entire book because there's a whole mm-hmm. book about this movie in mm-hmm. itself so Lady in the Water <laughs> thumbs down. <laughs> Well, what did tra- you watch? Transshipping <laughs> to the happening, <laughs> or maybe more accurately, accurately rephrased as a question: What's happening? <laughs> he made a remake of that show, What's Happening, from the seventies. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, there was a show called What's Happening. But fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a confession to make, Ryan. Okay, please. I started watching this on an iPad at two thirty a.m. this morning. Oh, I'm not regretful of this. Uh, that's exactly how much attention it deserved. <laughs> did you did you start it at two thirty, or did you wake up at like two o'clock and be like, "All right, I'm up now." Okay, get orange juice. This check, was a doing that. consistent stream of consciousness to two thirty. <laughs> oh God! So um, two thirty, you thought now's a good time to watch this movie. I should go to sleep, but <laughs> no, I figured it would be a good bedtime story yeah right yeah, and maybe maybe in the water and maybe i would merci- merci- mercifully drift asleep <laughs> and forget the ending ever happened and i i say this with no hyperbole and absolute scorn in my heart yeah this is one of the worst films i've ever seen yes oh it's ever seen again and i don't seek out bad movies most of the time no. usually when i see a bad movie it's because I went in thinking it was going to be a good movie. Yeah, which makes it almost doubly worse, I think, in that case. Yeah. It's disappointing, and it's also bad. You, you've made that point in the past, and I totally agree. That's Because that feels... You add disappointment to the mix, and that's <laughs> that, that weighs even more than bad sometimes. Uh, I sat through this thing absolutely stunned, like a cow that had just been electrically prodded. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> To quote the great Lewis Black, mm. what this is purely and simply is a clinical psychotic reaction. 
It's crazy. Yeah. It's stone cold fuck nuts. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Black. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> but I'll try. This is... I'm not even going to talk about the movie that much. Because <laughs> what is there to talk about? This is just going to be a rant. Yeah. It's so inconceivably, irredeemably terrible. It's it's a 90-minute life suck. <laughs> uh, how the night looked at this material and said, yeah, ready to shoot. Is <laughs> <laughs> a fact that an event in and of itself that's so mind-bogglingly nebulous so embarrassingly embarrassingly miscalculated that it should be on the Republican ticket for president <laughs> right about now. Everything is wrong. Yeah. Casting Mark Wahlberg was horribly misjudged. <laughs> He's an actor that can be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Depending on the filmmaker and the content, he can be fun to watch sometimes. I'm thinking of The Departed. I'm thinking of... I Heart Huckabees. I Heart... I haven't seen that, actually. Oh, okay. He was, he's very funny in I Heart Huckabees. Uh, Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. He can be rather enjoyable to watch if he's playing to his strengths. He's and very much like Nick Cage in that way, and that, and that he may play to the material. True. He plays up or down to the material based on, on who's, who's involved. He is not, however, one of the actors, one of those actors that can elevate crap. He, you give him shit, and he's going to make yes. it even shittier. Zoe Deschanel is in this movie, an actress who can normally just get by on charm alone. She's awful. <laughs> the whole film, she looks like a confused gopher. Yeah. <laughs> John John Lake Wazamo, on the other hand, is the only actor that actually breathes any humanity into this role in the film. That should speak volumes in and of itself. There's there's no internal logic here. There there's supposedly a force of nature that comes out of nowhere as a defense mechanism to quote human progress or human uh, engagement with the climate, which in and of itself is kind of an okay idea to base yeah. a movie around. You could ex- yeah. you, you could make an ecological thriller right. and a and a suspense horror movie out of that. I, I could see that happening. Yeah. Uh, but you go. But he takes it too far. I don't know if that's that's the point you're trying to make. Or like, he just goes nowhere with yeah. it. Either however you want to look at it. I mean, eventually the the Wahlberg character, I guess, figures something out about how to fight this. But uh, that is the best scene in the movie uh, where he's talking to the plant. He goes into the house and he's just sort of ta- he sort of starts looking at the plant. And he says like, "What are you doing? What are you doing? What?" What's happening? What are you? What are you doing around here? And it's like let me backtrack one second. The first time we see Wahlberg, he is teaching a class. Yeah, he's a school teacher. He's a school teacher. He's a again, science teacher. Again, a strike immediately against the heart of this film. <laughs> the first thing he says has something to do with. Hey, you want to know something about honeybees? <laughs> <laughs> and right off the bat, I am confused. I yeah. I don't know how to react. Uh, so he. Like you said, he confronts the plant, which he figures out is actually a plastic plant. Something that was supposed to, I guess, be funny. And he discovers that somehow people running from this thing that are in smaller groups like aren't targeted as harshly or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. It, it's murky. It's never really explained. It doesn't make a lick of sense. There's a sequence here, which you just mentioned. Actually, a little earlier than what you just mentioned, where the group he's in basically has to outsmart wind. Yes. And that gives anything Nick Cage did in The Wicker Man <laughs> a run for its money. It's the showstopper. <laughs> now, 
M. Night tries to justify this as a B movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what he said okay. multiple after times. The fact or? Before the before, before okay. and after the fact. All right. Okay, he said his inspiration for this film was films like The Birds, Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hitchcock just rolled over in his grave, and George Romero, George Romero may have just fell into his. <laughs> it's completely an unjustified comparison. There's no technical skill in this movie whatsoever. No. There's no creative breakthroughs. There's nothing artfully done. And, but I, I can sort of see where he's going with it in that the psychological aspect of it it's maybe not oh he knows what this should be yeah it's just not on screen it's just no it it did not translate at all now now ryan before you start to get the impression that i may have not liked this (laughs) film yeah please go let me tell you what works continue this will be short (laughs) the opening credits okay i don't even remember so that's how that's it the opening credits it's portentous it's basically a footage of clouds that's shown in time lapse okay so they're sped up Cumulus clouds being formed, dissolving. It it's foreboding. It's ominous. Uh, he blends it together with these dissolves. Uh, the names are rolling over these. <laughs> it highlights James Newton Howard's beautiful score. I have to say that mm-hmm. is the one thing that really stood out to me in this movie is mm-hmm. the music behind it. It's so much better than the movie it's involved yeah. with. Buy the score, skip the film. <laughs> that's that's it, Ryan. I that's it. I, I don't know what to say about about the happening. No, um, it, yeah, the, it, it, um, <laughs> no, we can't say anything. It's the just because that whole opening sequence. I think it's trying to show that, like, hey, he's the hip teacher. He's the cool. He's the cool dude who also he can connect with the kids and really know stuff. Right. But then he goes off in this whole tangent about talking about how this this like like hot kid is going to be ugly in like 20 years. Like, you know, your nose is going to grow like half an inch every year, every single year. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. You're going to be cute all your life. Don't worry. You know, like, and, and they're just now, cause I want to go back to what you're saying about extrapolating the, the theme of it, which is Mm. like, you can have this idea to like, Oh, you know, maybe he's trying to make a, a point about global warming. You know, like the mm-hmm. the environment is trying to kill us. You know, right, right, right. that's a cool idea. You mm-hmm. could have that if done well, but in this one, the environment is literally killing you. <laughs> it's there's right. no subtlety to it. There's right. no, right. no, no, no it literally. More, it's making you kill yourself. Well, it, yeah. it, that's what he says. It's yeah. taking away these certain receptors in the brain that normally advise against self mutilation <laughs> and forcing you to take. Whatever is closest to you, it might be a fifty-foot drop. It might be an officer's gun. Mm-hmm. It might be the you know, lawnmower. It might be a lawnmower. It yeah. might be the you know the the hairpin that you're wearing, and to just off yourself with it. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that kept kept weighing down on me is I never knew for a second what this movie was going for. Is it a comedy? Is it a suspense thriller? Is it horror? Is it a schlocky B movie, as mm-hmm. he keeps insisting, it never lands on a tone that is explored for more than ten minutes, uh, and it's 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 so lopsided, it's so all over the place that I, I I'm I'm just as stunned now thinking about it and having written about it yeah. as I was watching it. That another, makes zero sense. Another at all. showstopper when they're when they're trying to to outsmart the wind. Yeah. Literally, not, literally we're not being just like it's not like there's a subtlety in it no they are trying to run faster and in, in the, the field and in the opposite direction of where the wind is blowing yeah 
and they try to outrun wind and the wind actually corners them <laughs> and Shyamalan holds the camera on Wahlberg's face in close up for so long it's not a continuous shot but he cuts back and forth to Wahlberg in close up trying to figure out what to do and it keeps evolving to the point of we just give me a second guys mm-hmm. and it cuts back to the rest of the people I just need a minute, guys. <laughs> Cuts back to the other people. If you just give me ten minutes to think about this, guys, I'll get us out. And it's everything Wahlberg should not be allowed to be doing. Giving a scene gravity. Yes. <laughs> that is not his strength. Yeah, when you, hand him, when you hand him the keys to the emotional center of the scene, he's going to drive it off of a cliff. <laughs> He's going to do something horrible. Terrible. And, and, and he says that he regrets it. I looked up mm-hmm. his reaction to this film. He says, well, it gave me the opportunity to play a science teacher. And it was something different than a cop or a crook, which I normally do. So can you really blame me in hindsight? <laughs> and I don't. I don't. I mean, it was a different role for him. And it could have gone better if the film was good. But the film fails on every conceivable level. And I don't know what else to say about this, Ryan. I no. think I think we've given a much more thought-provoking experience than the film did. Now he 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 came from somewhere. These movies are worse because of where that he started. Right. So I watched Unbreakable. Right. Again, both of us consider that to be his best movie. Right. It's. I mean, you know, however you want to break it down, best favorite. It's it's all the. You know, it's pretty much the same for me. Yeah. Um, But watching Unbreakable again, it really is the superhero movie, like you said, that we are so craving these days. Right. It it, it has no previous mythology. Nothing. It is a completely original property. Yeah. And you don't even really know it's one going in. No, you don't. It, and you it don't, you're reveals not expecting that. It reveals itself. It slowly but surely unfolds as it goes along. Now, there is, a, there is a lot of talk on the surface about heroes and villains because Samuel L. Jackson's character is a comic book fanatic. You right. know, he's an art dealer who deals with uh, exclusive... You know, original drawings of comic book covers and is it Mr. Glass. Is that, is that yeah, his name? yeah. Elijah Price is his name in the movie, but they call they him call him Mr. Mr. Glass because okay. it's because he breaks like glass, right? Um, but but that movie that takes the style and mixes it with something that we care about, mm-hmm. and so that elevates it even more, right? Because I don't know when the last time you watched it was, or if you if you picked up on in the this, last couple of years, but. I mean, most of the shots, if you look at the framing, they are framed exactly like a comic book panel. There's always two things, two objects on either side that Shyamalan is shooting characters through to give the effect of these characters are talking in a comic book. There's especially a great shot when Bruce Willis's character, David Dunn, is working at his job as a... Uh, security guard at a football stadium yeah. in college and he and Samuel L. Jackson are maybe 30 or 40 feet away from the camera and having a conversation there's a gate that is in the shot and there's maybe a four inch gap in between each of the bars in the gate and he has them Shyamalan has them perfectly set in the middle of one of those mm-hmm. And it's clear as day, and you can see that he's boxing in his characters. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing when you sort of 
when you put that together with with the origin story that this is a comic book movie, you know, 10 year, 10, 15 years before we get this onslaught Mm -hmm. of movies based on comic books. Yeah. It's um, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's the same year that uh, that X Men came, came out. Yeah, yeah it, this this was really. I mean, Blade kind of have had a, had its roots in the in the genre before that, and before then, obviously, you had to go back to the the Batman's, the Superman's. But mm-hmm. this was the start of the superhero era as we really know it today. It's little sort of touches like that that don't seem. And again, pretentious is the mm-hmm. word that I you know yeah, I, yeah. I know I know the word. I mean, that was, we don't really like that word, but th- it seems like it, they, they add something to the story. And it's not just I'm just going to do this just to do it to make it look cool. Yeah, there's a richness to it. It's it's something that enforces enforces everything that's on screen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's a it, it's it's a foundation. It's the cornerstone. Yeah, it almost it complements the skill the skill and the story complement each other. It doesn't not one of them doesn't stand out on on either side. It actually does. Um, it mean it has all the hallmarks of a comic book movie. Just mm-hmm. it's very. They're all very subtle. We pick up on them now watching the movie because we've seen so many of them yeah. throughout the years. Yeah. But back then, you know, not having been like a huge comic book reader when I was and younger. Right. The, the genre, at least in film, was in its infancy. infancy. Yeah. But I mean, the hero and the villain meeting innocently, you know, the hero discovering his power. There's a great scene where Bruce Willis is uh, lifting in the basement yeah. with his son and yeah. they keep adding and adding and adding and he's trying to figure, he's figuring out his power. He's bench pressing 400 pounds. Right, and, they run out of weights and so they yeah. got to use like cement buckets. Yeah, they use a whole bunch of stuff and they're interesting because he gives each character certain color schemes. So when you're looking at Samuel L. Jackson, there's lots of blacks and purples and, you know, the, the, the these dark, dark, evil looking colors. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Bruce Willis's character has a lot of green, a lot of maroon, more, you know, lighter, quote-unquote, hero colors. There's even times when he's wearing this green hoodie. I said mm-hmm. he looks like the Green Arrow. I mean, <laughs> that he looks like certain yeah. cartoon, or comic book characters. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's also just a great symmetry between the characters because you have the, the uh, Elijah Price character who is figure uh, literally very very weak like he mm-hmm. he is more of a of a schemer you know yeah he uh gordon's got schemes <laughs> <laughs> yeah gordon's got plans <laughs> yeah i mean but he is he makes up for that by being a mastermind he knows exactly who he is he knows how to get what he wants he just has the the shortcoming of being physically slight and weak whereas you have the the Bruce Willis character, who has no idea really who he is during this movie. Mm-hmm. The whole movie is him becoming himself, in a sense. Yeah. But literally, in this case, the character has incredible strength. So there's yeah. some great counterbalancing going on there. Yeah, and, I mean, there is, there, there's a wonderful scene at the end where there's the, the sequence where Bruce Willis becomes this hero. He becomes his, the, 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 the hooded hero that saves the family from the home invader. And there's a quiet, brilliant scene at the very end because his son throughout the entire movie just adores him and believes what Elijah Price is saying about his father, that he's a big, he's a hero, he's a superhero, and he's, he's this, you know, amazing person. He survived this train crash with not even a scratch on him. And at the time, and so they're around the breakfast table, he slides the newspaper to his son and it shows a drawing of... Bruce Willis, uh, as the family saw him, the, the family, you know, they just, they were saved and they went to the newspaper and they, they drew him and 
zero dialogue is portrayed between the two. And it's great. It's wonderful acting, but it's wonderful yeah. tension and, and wonderful. Um, I just put this quiet glory, really, yeah. of the son finally realizing and the father realizing what his son sees in him. And it's mm-hmm. very, very touching. And those moments are just not in the happening. They're not mm-hmm. in the lady in the water. They're not yeah. in after earth. And if they try, they fail. Mm-hmm. If, if the, the, the moment falls flat. Mm-hmm. And it's moments like those that I feel like made him took, take something, you know, it could have been just an ordinary scene and sort of elevated it. And made it extraordinary. Exactly. That's something that great films do. They they fill in weight in the quiet spaces. You know, Spielberg's great at it. Uh, you know, Coppola. All these masters are really, really wonderful at expressing volumes with while simultaneously saying very little. And I agree that these moments, I mean, at least for the happening, the only one that I have seen completely vacant yeah there, there's i mean i didn't even notice an attempt in the happening no, there's not even a there's not even a tr- they didn't even try you're right yeah and i i remember the the ending of the film was kind of a disappointment to me the first time i saw it because i felt like it ended right when it was at the peak of its powers mm-hmm. and i wanted to see more just yeah. purely and simply i mm-hmm. wanted to see the another chapter in the story and revisiting it i've come to see it as a more satisfying closure point because i feel like the the crux of the story the characters have been the crux of the story has been fleshed out the characters are so well developed and it it just it it it's it's, it's, for some reason seems more logical to me now yeah and isn't that kind of what a great movie or something does leaves you kind of wanting more Mm -hmm. that yeah it it, it does leave off i got myself thinking about the sequel you know Mm -hmm. he had been apparently in talks to he said he's been writing it and oh i'm kind of he wants to make a sequel to it Patton oswald had a really good idea about a a trilogy at one point yeah yeah yeah. i remember that yeah i don't think i would want present day m night Shyamalan to tackle it (laughs) i might want him to just stay far away from it and just give somebody else a shot but I just kind of thought about Bruce Willis being this modern day superhero, basically, and mm-hmm. sort of saving the day, and maybe having Elijah as like a Joker, maniacal, you know, in the criminally insane, sort of an Arkham Asylum <laughs> kind of thing. And I think yeah. that would just be really, really cool. Yeah. The mind games that they could play with each other. Yeah, so. the, the Mr. Glass thing. I'm surprised we haven't touched on this yet, but four films in a row, The Sixth Sense, Through the Village. Shyamalan, Shyamalan, excuse me, became very, very famous for the twist ending. Mm-hmm. And that is something, that, I mean, you may be able to vouch for it. I don't know if he's continued that past the village. No, he has not. I mean, I think he realized he was kind of painting himself into a corner with that. And when everybody's waiting for you to pull the rug out from under them, there's a good chance they're missing what you're actually showing them because mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to outsmart the movie yeah. in a sense. And the sixth sense, uh, Really, really, it was something that had been done in the past, but I don't think, I mean, maybe, what, since Luke was Vader's son? I mean, when when did a movie this famous have such a twist that was so popular? Yeah. And it was the talk of the town. It almost transcended the movie movie itself and contributed to, directly, Mm -hmm. to the movie's success. Mm -hmm. Because I can speak from experience, seeing it, a couple of different times over a couple of different weeks, it lends itself because you now, when you know the ending, mm-hmm. you now want to go back 
and you want to try to pick out the little mm-hmm. clues and see if they stayed consistent mm-hmm. with the rules that they have set up. Mm-hmm. And they totally do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is a good point for me to transition into the sixth sense if you're yeah. done talking no, please, about uh, Unbreakable. Because, yeah. well, first, let me let me give you some facts about the sixth sense just to give some indication of how far the mighty has, have oh. fall, has fallen. Oh, this is going to be a sad, sad time. Okay. In 2007, AFI voted this movie the 89th greatest film of all time. Wow. It was originally originally inspired by an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Surprisingly. Maybe oh, not. Okay. It was nominated for six Oscars in 1999, including writing and directing for Shyamalan. It's only one of five horror films to get a Best Picture nomination. Hmm. The others are The Exorcist, Jaws, The Silence of the Lambs, and Black Swan. In the domestic box office of 1999, it finished with $293 million, second only to Star Wars Episode, episode one. 1. Yeah, I figured it would be. In a year that also included Fight Club, American Beauty, The Matrix, The Green Mile, The Iron Giant, Toy Story 2, The Blair Witch Project. This film connected with the general public more than any of them. (laughs) Yeah. Now, why is that? Uh, There is an elegance and a, a grace, I think, to this picture, which is kind of strange because there's also this pervasive sense of melancholy just veiling the whole mm-hmm. film it almost feels like a like a requiem or something uh it was very strange for me to watch this movie again because i i think this is the third time i've seen it it's the first time in at least several years that i've seen it and knowing you know having seen hundreds of more movies now and after going through a film education i was was really curious to see what this film would mean to me now and i got to say it was it was a very strange experience watching this again because what i really discovered is it's it's kind of one of those movies you can only really watch once in a sense because mm-hmm. once it once it plays its hand it's it's everything you know the emotional climax of the film everything it's been building towards is really hinges on this revelation and there are certain things with the kid, uh, Haley Joel Osment, and another uh, Oscar nominated performance. Uh, he has some emotional resolutions, and the mom, played by Tony Collette, has uh, kind of an emotional arc filled with her character, although she's kind of a tertiary character, and it's not really what you grab onto when the movie's over. But the Bruce Willis resolution is the twist, the, the aforementioned twist we were talking about. And for me, it really was everything. Um, you can go back and watch it as I just did, and you can get a good sense of the of the mechanics of the movie. Um, you can see what Shyam- what Shyamalan is trying to do, how he's trying to basically mask this great uh, revelation mm-hmm. at the end, and he does it basically by putting Willis in a situation where in constant situations where it looks like he's interacting with people. Yes. And it's very skillfully done. Uh, he kind of puts a little twist on it every time he does a scene like this, whether uh, the Willis character was talking with his estranged wife. He, maybe he's talking over her and she's sleeping or he meets her for dinner and she looks really upset. Like maybe he's late. He stood her up or yeah. something and she's not acknowledging him. And, she grabs the bill right before he can to pay for dinner, and she leaves and mumbles something to herself. 
that could have been said directly to him. Mm-hmm. And there are some very good strengths to this that, as I just discussed with the happening, are completely vacant. <laughs> Absent. Um, there is a good sense of just foreboding in general and use of shadow, almost kind of noirish, like a noirish thriller. There's a... Uh, a great scene, uh, the opening scene, the prologue, actually, where Shyamalan uses shadow in off-screen space, actually, to kind of be a, a portent for... No, it, it's actually... It's, it is the, the clue that the Willis character and his wife are not the only two people in this room. And it's basically just a shadow that very slowly waves past them. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you know it's coming from off-screen. You don't know who it is, but... It's the clue that something very ominous is about to happen, and he doesn't give it away with a cheap musical cue. It's just something that solely rests on its psychological weight because we're all we're kind of unnerved, and mm-hmm. it, it works. It works brilliantly. Um, it's it's definitely much more of a psychological thriller, and there's a great self-referential piece of dialogue. Uh, it happens right around the the famous "I see uh, dead people." line and Bruce Willis is trying to tell Haley Joel Osment a bedtime story getting back to that mm-hmm. motif that yeah. keeps keeps coming up here and he's obviously never done it his story sucks and the kid calls him out on it and he, and he says uh quote you have to add some twists and stuff and end quote which <laughs> yeah. which got a little laugh out of me cuz yeah. knowing how the knowing how the story resolves uh the performances in this film are are very strong uh, across the board with the three main players uh we already said Osmond got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Tony Collette got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Bruce Willis in what has to be the most anti-John McClane mode he's ever been in. He's so <laughs> yeah. subtle. He's so subdued. He's contemplative. He is, other than having hair, which is something well, we're not used to anymore. Yeah, no. I, I'm really not used to the it's, performance he gives in this movie. Yeah. It's, it's completely uh, not laid back, but almost like a... Like a stoic, uh, yeah. a stoic, reflexive Bruce Willis, which, I think, which works well. I think the performance, I buy that more than I buy the hair. But you know, <laughs> the hair, the hair is uh, is definitely a rug. He's but. been trying to rock the the bald, uh, you know, the yeah. Ma- he the just gave up. Thing now. He's wise. I think very, very. That's uh, fine. You know what? Just do your thing, man. Yeah. You know, you lost your hair. Embrace it. You're old. That's fine. It's exactly. Fine. It happens. Yeah. Uh, it looks as though Haley Joel Osment has peaked early, unfortunately. unfortunately. Uh, I think he's 27 now, yeah. and he, he basically looks literally like an older version of his yeah. child self. Like it's he, very weird. I mean, he's a little puffier in the cheeks now, but he looks almost identical yeah. than how he did in this movie. And I guess he's still only like 5'4", so he's... it's small. It, yeah, he hasn't changed much. Well, he's... Because he was in... The last thing he was in was in the Entourage movie. Yeah. That I saw, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it is weird seeing it because it's almost like you took his his features, his facial features from The Sixth Sense and just put it on, like, an adult's body. So, yeah, like yeah. you said, like, it's puffy. He's got puffy around the face. Yeah. But it, his eyes and his nose and his mouth are exactly the same. Those have not grown in 15 years. Yeah. But just what happened around him, that grew. Yeah. But this yeah. stayed exactly the same. <laughs> it stayed in the exact same place. Exactly. So, he, yeah, he's he's very good here. I think he did earn his nomination. He holds down every scene he's in. He... He he plays the whole uh, tortured gift thing that his character is working with uh, very well. He's he's so unsure of himself. He doesn't know what to do with this gift he has. He knows he's different. He calls himself a freak, and his acting really just 
reflects that in every scene he's in. I think oh, that was a really accomplished performance. Uh, but those moments you can pick out mm-hmm. from Unbreakable, from mm-hmm. Signs, from this movie, from The Sixth Sense. You can pick out those those little moments where memorable or or you know good i guess you know i mean just generally but yeah it's hard to shake them they stay with you yeah and in the later films in the happening of course with lady in the water Mm -hmm. i mean with after earth with these movies i don't remember anything there is nothing memorable about them Mm -hmm. i mean because even if you had a scene here and there you could point to and go okay well that has some skill or whatever that has some some (laughs) gravitas some gravitas to it excuse me right um but there just isn't and i think that is missing mm-hmm. from his early films to his later films. Right. And he just either he stopped doing it because he felt he didn't need them or it just happened organically as a result of terrible stories mixed yeah. with not great <laughs> not, everything else. Inspired everything else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there's a very, actually there's some rich motifs going on in this movie too. It's such a more complete package. There's this, motif i kind of refer to as red and the locked door uh willis's character malcolm crow which by the way is such a badass name that no one <laughs> really is. has yeah it's such a, it's such a an, it's such a character name that was written I'm by sure someone. russell's uncle does but <laughs> yeah. no one else does no one else is man enough to own no. that name <laughs> but he can never seem to open his wine cellar which were shown a few times at least two or three times um and for the cole character the osman character there's one effective scene where he senses the dead behind this locked cabinet door and these two kids forcibly lock him inside they kind of trick him tell him tell him they're playing a dungeon game lock him in the room and it results in some visible cuts on the kid's body and something just sort of a a seizure very harrowing scene and the kid's locked door like malcolm's i think represents confrontation uh for malcolm it's confronting what really happened to him at the beginning of the film which he obviously has not come around to dealing with yet uh, his revelation and for the kid it's about confronting and actually listening to the dead for the first time embracing his gift for whatever result comes of it and accepting and understanding this horrible thing that he's been like strapped with malcolm's wine cellar has this like ruby red handle mm-hmm. and that's and, very, that's always stuck with me too yeah it's just it's just impossibly richly red for some reason and Cole being locked in the the door is prefaced by the suspended trap red balloon that's at the top of the ceiling. And I don't know what red actually means. I can tell you what red actually means. Okay. I have an idea of what it means. What do you think it means? uh, I don't know. I I was going for something more figurative. Like it's like, it's a sanctuary against the characters facing themselves for the first time or something. It represents the presence of the undead or the dead basically. Okay. So, Okay, that He's makes got sense. his yeah. red door handle, mm-hmm. of course, the red balloon, mm-hmm. the red, uh, there's a red motif at the uh, restaurant where he goes to with his wife. Okay. Anytime, really, Bruce Willis is in a scene, frankly. <laughs> right, so or so watching it again, it's you can kind of see you where every, kinda, everything's telegraphed. Yeah, in a way. yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, there's a good narrative shift that he uses in the film. We're seeing things through Willis's eyes through mostly the first half, and then as soon as the kid... Says his famous line, mm-hmm. we suddenly start to see things from the kid's perspective, and the dead are visible for the first time. Yeah. And uh, there's, uh, I think this was out of necessity to some extent because you can only show the Willis character in so many different ways, kind of interacting with people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where it doesn't be, start to become weird, a little weird, and what's going on here, kind of a thing. So I think it was out of necessity, but it's a very good and well judged device. I think that. Acts is kind of a slow burn because 
this thing is just gestating in the background. We don't really get to see it until the kid lets us know explicitly what's going on. And as soon as that happens, it's it's very fresh. It's kind of an all bets are off about face for the audience. This movie was a huge success. Mm. Um, it was only made for $40 million. It made $673 million worldwide. <laughs> worldwide. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's probably a pretty good reason why he keeps getting movie, why he kept getting work, partly because he was doing it himself. He was writing mm. everything, he was producing, he was directing. Yeah. And he would turn these decently small budgets into really Box good gold. Yeah. The happening was forty eight million dollars it cost. I don't know where that went. <laughs> but it was it Obviously a, it meant to deal with the wins agents. Yeah. <laughs> Hundred and sixty three million though it made. Total. Probably ninety percent of that was opening weekend. I'm sure. It has it. to be. Yeah. <laughs> so to conclude everything about the sixth sense is better than mm-hmm. the happening. Uh, the, the, the only things that they actually shared have in common. Uh, both films were entirely shot in sequence. I don't know why he does that. Maybe it's for continuity or mm-hmm. flow. Maybe the characters, the actors like it. He had James Newton Howard doing the score in both films. He used the same <laughs> DP and that's where the similarities end. Everything yeah. else is just a complete failure and a, a complete lack of artistry. Yeah. Um, the fact that Shyamalan is credited with writing and directing both of these films is irreconcilable. It's unbelievable. I don't. I. I don't. It's. The, these are made by two different filmmakers. It, the, the happening lacks everything that made the Sixth Sense memorable. It, there's an elegance. The, the dialogue is good. The symbolism is rich. There's a good pacing. Mm-hmm. There's an air of mystery to the Sixth Sense. There is earned suspense. There are character arcs that pay off. None of which appear in The Happening. It's zero for everything I just said. A quote that is really, it's, it makes it kind of hard not to respect the guy as a, okay. as a practitioner of his, of his craft. He once said, quote, I'm going to stop making movies if they end the cinema experience. If there's a last film that's released only theatrically, it'll have my name on it. This is life or death to me. If you tell audiences there's no difference between a theatrical experience and a DVD, then that's it. Game's over and the whole art form is going away slowly movies will end up being this esoteric art form where only singular people will put films out in small groups of theaters so you have that okay which yeah would, you know you want there's a, guy a to hint be, of truth in that there, there i is. think yeah but I, then okay judging by what you just said he reminds you of his stubbornness and inflated ego and then you forget about what was just said yeah quote my movies don't get the acclaim my movies don't get acclaim the day they come i have to wait longer and, oh my god! End, end quote. Quote: If you're not betting on me, then nobody should get money. I I have made profit a mathematical certainty. I'm the safest bet you got. End quote. <laughs> god. And this uh, quote: Except for Pixar, I have made the four most successful original movies in a row of all time. End quote. Again, except for Pixar. So I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. you come in second to Pixar. That oh means man, nothing. And most recently, if we want to be topical Ooh, about this, okay. I'm paraphrasing. He said that critics don't get the last airbender because I made it for nine and 10 year olds. Oh no, you didn't man. Well, the iron giant and Wally were also made for nine and 10 year olds, (laughs) (laughs) but those turned out a little differently. Much better. I think so. I I did that basically to sleep at night better after just trashing this man's film. Yeah. So horribly and propping up a much better one. I don't feel as bad anymore. Yeah, it's really a shame because he he did have you could see something in it before. 
And I think it's a, it's a shame because I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. There's there's not. No. I mean, I I would love to see a renaissance, but this next movie coming out, it looks very pedestrian. It looks like a normal, like he's almost falling in line with the found footage horror movie and and stuff like that. And it, I would be. He's very going su- to grandma's house. I would be very surprised if it's if it if it is any good. I mean, if it's it's even at. I'll say thirty to forty percent on the Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> that that, that, that would be shocked. that would be an improvement. It really would be. Actually, I mean, because we should be striving to have his name not be a punchline anymore. Because these film early films are so good. Well, he has to put the pen down. Is what I yeah have come to. I mean, this this may be that rarefied case of a filmmaker that only had so many good stories to tell, and it's time to let someone else tell the stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, his first three films aren't an accident. The guy can direct a motion picture, and he can direct it to critical and commercial success. In conclusion, M. Night, we hope you come back. We hope to see the original M. Night, but if we don't, at least we still have the first three and a half of, <laughs> of, his, of his film career. Um, I think I want to watch uh, Unbreakable again. That's uh, You should. That's happening. I think we... Oh, God. <laughs> Ryan, I had to give you one of those. <sighs> For the McShank <laughs> Podcast, this is Ryan. This is Clayton. <laughs>